Our Father, we begin this week of Thanksgiving by offering to you hearts of gratitude. In a week where many will give thanks for temporal and even ungodly things and will fail to acknowledge you as the giver of the gifts that they have received, we begin this week by affirming our allegiance to you and our gratitude to you for all of your provisions for us and for your eternal and infinite nature. We come acknowledging you as the rock of our salvation. You are unendingly firm and strong. You are resolute and immovable. And likewise, your salvation is firm. The salvation we have is based on you, the rock. There is no other. And once saved by you, we are secure and safe in that salvation. For that eternal safety, we give you thanks. For you have given us liberally what we could never achieve on our own. We affirm that you are a great God. You are majestic and beautiful. You are strong, infinitely strong and comprehensively strong. You are sovereign king in that strength. You rule over us individually. You rule over our church corporately. You rule over our nation and all the nations of the earth supremely. People will propose other forms of deity, but there is no other God but you alone. And you rule, and you are master over every other purported deity and over every created being. We give thanks for that sovereignty, for it provides wisdom and direction for us. We see your sovereignty every day in creation. We see the magnitude of the earth. The depths of the ocean, the heights of the mountains, the expansiveness of the seas, the vastness of the lands on our planet. And you hold it all in your hand. You did not strain in creating this world. And nothing since creation has caused you any difficulty in caring for it. The world belongs to you. You are master over it. And you control and direct it with sovereign wisdom and ease. We thank you for your daily provision of light and dark, water and food, air to breathe and habitation to enjoy. You made it all for our provision and as a demonstration of the greatness of your glory. We give thanks to you for the gift of this world. Not only did you make the world and the nations and every inhabitant of this world, but you have also created a people to be your own. You chose Israel to be yours, not because she was the greatest, but because she was the least, so that you might manifest your great love through your choice of her. Similarly, you have created us, Christ's church, to be grafted into Israel's promises And that, too, you have done in your love. We were helpless and without God in this world. And you have made us yours. And as the great shepherd, you protect us and keep us from all harm and promise to bring us to your eternal home. So, like Israel, we bow in worship and gratitude to you. We affirm your many gifts to us personally and nationally. 
We have received much favor and kindness from you in the time and place in which we live. But far more, infinitely more, we have received much favor from you spiritually. You have forgiven, removed, washed, cleansed, and redeemed our sin. You have united us to Christ and to yourself through the baptizing work of the Spirit of God. You have given us access to you and fellowship with you, the infinite God of the ages, through the Spirit. You have taken broken, ungodly, weak human beings and filled us with the Spirit of God and the gospel of grace and equipped us to serve you. You have been pleased to redeem sinners through the weak ministry of other redeemed sinners and so have demonstrated your immensity. You have united us to one another, forming us into a church that is led by the gracious Savior and reconciled us to each other. Though we have sinned against each other, we have experienced your grace to unite us and give us the joy of fellowship that anticipates the future and glory with you. And then you have given us an eternal hope that will not fade and cannot be taken away. Our future is safe. Our future is secure because our Savior is secure. Because we have received so much from you, would you forgive us for our ingratitude and our complaining? We acknowledge that we have found too much delight in created things and have not found sufficient delight in you, the Creator. We have grumbled when we have not received what we wanted and grumbled again when we have lost the temporal things that we have longed to have. We have failed to rest in you and to find our delight and our gratitude in you. So this week, would you keep us content in you, mindful of your nature and thankful for your provisions, particularly your spiritual provisions for us. Might this be a week of great worship and sanctification in you as we give thanks to you. In the great name of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We live in difficult days. Has there ever been a time that we haven't been able to say that? But it seems particularly difficult at times, doesn't it? People are trying to figure out exactly the nature of our troubles One theologian has observed that social observers and politicians and others have called our time, quote, the age of anxiety, the age of identity politics, the age of polarization. He writes, all touch on some aspect of our current struggles, but perhaps a better title might be the age of ingratitude. We live in an age of ingratitude. I think he might be on to something, don't you? Many post offices receive on an annual basis, particularly at this season, letters that are addressed to God. Some of those letters then end up in Jerusalem where they end up in the undeliverable section. They go to Jerusalem, of course, because God is closer to Israel than other parts of the world, the thinking goes. In one letter that arrived in the undeliverable mail section of the Jerusalem post office a few years ago, 
one man on the brink of poverty wrote a letter to God and asked for 5,000 shekels to help ease that poverty, about $1,000 at the time. The postal workers, in reading his letter, were moved by his plight, and so they gathered together and sent him 4,300 shekels. A month later, another letter from the same man addressed to God showed up at the Jerusalem post office. It said this, Thank you, God, for the contribution. But next time, please don't send it through these postmen. They're thieves. They stole 700 shekels. Yeah, that fits the tenor of our age, doesn't it? We live in an age of ingratitude. Who might take it a step further? When we are thankful... We are often thankful for the wrong things. And then when we lose those things that we desire, we're tempted to slide back into ingratitude. And so it repeatedly goes, I want the wrong thing, I get the wrong thing, I lose the wrong thing, I become more ungrateful, and down and down I spiral. We know There is help for us in God's Word. We might turn to many passages this morning to feed our minds on gratitude. But this morning I want to take you to what I hope is a familiar passage to you, Psalm 100. It's a short psalm. It is a psalm that may have been sung by worshipers as they were preparing for worship on a Sabbath morning. It is very likely that when they showed up to the temple, they would gather outside the temple and sing this as they were entering or as they were preparing to enter the temple. As we work our way through this short psalm, here's the message that we will find. Give thanks to God, because God is God. Give thanks to God, because God is God. God is supreme. God is wise. God is accomplishing all of his good purposes for his people. This psalm really culminates uh, 10 psalms, beginning in Psalm 90, as something of a response to Psalm 89. Uh, This psalm might be the climax of Psalms 90 to 99, as it reflects on the goodness of God, the grace of God, and God worthy to be thanked and worshipped. These psalms might be loosely connected to Psalm 89, where there is not gratitude, but seemingly ingratitude. We find this Psalm 89, just look at verse 38 if you've turned back. But you, the psalmist complains, have cast off and rejected You have been full of wrath against your anointed. You have spurned the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown in the dust. You have broken down all his walls. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass along the way plunder him. He has become a reproach to his neighbors. It just seems there's this despair that, God, you've made all these promises, and it just looks like you haven't fulfilled them. And dare the psalmist say it, it looks like you don't even care. In fact, verse 46, God himself seems to be absent. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever and will your wrath burn like fire? Won't you come and help? How bad does it have to get before you will come 
and help me. Do you ever feel like what the psalmist says in verse 49 of Psalm 89? Where are your former loving kindnesses, O Lord, which you swore to David in your faithfulness? Maybe you say it like this when you've had the third thing go wrong this week of significant nature. I can't catch a break. It just seems like God is against me. To that, the psalmist responds in Psalms 90 to 99, speaking about the goodness of God, the character of God, and helps us to straighten the skewed thinking of Psalm 89. And so we come to Psalm 100 as the epitome of that correction to be reminded to give thanks to God because God is God. As we make our way through this psalm, it's really a fairly simple structure. We will gain two insights for cultivating gratitude. Two insights for cultivating gratitude. The first thing I want you to notice, the first insight I want you to notice is that in verses 1 to 3, there is a mandate to the world to give thanks to the Lord. There's a mandate to the world to give thanks to the Lord. In fact, what we'll find particularly in verse 1 is that gratitude is a mandate for all people. Now, we know that the Psalms were written to the Israelites to regulate their worship. So it's an expression of their worship. It was They were songs that were sung in their worship to drive their hearts to the Lord. But notice the emphasis of verse 1. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Now, in some Psalms, the speakers, the writers speak of a physical land declaring the glory of God. We find this multiple places in the Psalms, but for instance, Psalm 148, start in verse 3, praise Him, sun and moon, praise Him, all stars of light, praise Him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens, let them all praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. So the earth physically in a sense, is given to express praise and gratitude towards God. But here, I don't think he's talking about the physical land giving praise to God, but he's using the word earth to reflect all of the nations of the earth are to give gratitude and praise to God. All the nations of the earth, all the people of all the nations are commanded to worship God with gratitude. Now, as we make our way through the Psalms, what we find repeatedly is that Yahweh, the Lord, is recognized by the psalmist to be the master of all the world and the people should worship him. For instance, we find that theme in Psalm 66, verse 1. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. So all of the earth, all the inhabitants of the earth are designed by God to give praise to Him. We even find this in one of those psalms that precedes the 100th, Psalm 96, verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. So the nations are called to worship and exalt God. Psalm 98, verse 4. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth, break forth and sing for joy and sing His praises. Verse 6, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, shout joyfully before the king, before the Lord. This is, this is the call of all people everywhere to give declaration to the Lord. Well, why? Why should the nations 
give praise and recognize that God is Lord. Because even though they may not worship Him, even though they may not want Him, He is the Lord. Though they have not ascribed worth to Him in their rebellion against Him and in their unbelief, He is still their King, their Master, their Sovereign. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's. It belongs to Him. It's His. It doesn't belong to anybody else. It doesn't belong to Microsoft, though it appears at times that it belongs to Microsoft. It doesn't belong to Elon Musk. It doesn't belong to anyone except the Lord. The earth is the Lord's. And everything that it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So He owns everything and He owns everyone. He is the Master. Again, the Psalms that immediately precede the 100th Psalm 96, verse 5. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. That means He's the King. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved and He will judge the peoples with equity. He is the Master. He is, he is the King. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion and He is exalted above all peoples. He rules from Israel. He rules from Jerusalem. He rules from His temple. But His rulership magnifies itself and goes through all the earth. He owns it all and He is sovereign over it all. What we also know is it is good and fitting for all of the earth, as the psalmist says here, to shout joyfully to the Lord, because one day they will. Whether they want to or not, they will affirm that God is the King. Isaiah 45, a passage that Paul borrows from in Philippians chapter 2. Isaiah 45, he writes this, starting in verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. There's no other God. Whatever you're pursuing, he says to the earth, whatever idol you have set up, understand that's not a God. I am the only God. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness. It will not turn back. You can't change my word just by saying, well, I don't believe that. doesn't change the reality that God is God. My word will not turn back. That word That to me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. And they will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. All who were angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. So all will come to him. Some will come in gratitude to him. And he says, others will come and they will be put to shame in their coming, in their acknowledging that he is the king because they've done it too late. And so when the psalmist says in in verse 1 of 100, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth, it's a precursor. You're going to have to worship him, give thanks to him. Do that now. 
Begin that gratitude and worship now while you have a chance to repent and before you will be unable to change your eternal destiny. Oh, friend, worship and give thanks now. And if you're with us this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ and and it is your perspective that, well, I can just do that in the by and by. Eventually I'll do that. Understand that there's a short time in which you might swear allegiance to God and have it affect your eternal destiny. And it is in the years of the life that God has given you on this earth. And once you pass out of this earth and into eternity, where you will live for all of eternity, it will be too late if you are living in hell and not in heaven. And so, brother, you will In hell or in heaven, swear allegiance to God and understand that He is sovereign King. But once in hell, you cannot change your vote. You cannot move outside that domain and into glory with God. So friend, learn the lesson from the psalmist here. And even now, shout joyfully to the Lord. Turn your allegiance to Him. Give gratitude to Him today. Gratitude and worship is a mandate for all people. Along with us, we see this. The gratitude is a mandate. Now, I think most of us would acknowledge that it's it's probably good to be grateful. We know people who are grateful and they overall seem to be happier than ungrateful people. Maybe you have images of a couple different people in mind and say he's He's a grateful person in general, and he seems to be pretty happy. And then there's this other guy who's the polar opposite. Gratitude is good. It's good for the soul. That's true. But it's not just good for the soul. Watch this in this text. Gratitude is mandated. It's a command. It's not optional for God's people or for anyone. It's an imperative. And so as the Israelites were gathering for worship, and again, as they were singing this song, as they're approaching the temple, they were reminded in singing this song that they were being commanded to give thanks. And I get that from the fact that there are eight verbs in these five verses. And seven of those eight verbs are imperatives. The one exception is in verse 3 where it says, He has made us. All of the others are imperatives. Shout, serve, come, know, enter, give thanks. You must give thanks, worship with gratitude. It's not optional. It's not, well, I know it's good for you, but really, I, I, I prefer grumpiness today. Thank you very much. It's not optional. Some commentators have called this an imperatival hymn. It's an imperative hymn. It's, it's a command hymn. It, it orders us. And the command is, according to verse 1, for all people, not just Israel. It's, it's for everyone. Notice what he says, verse 1. Shout joyfully to the Lord. Shouting joyfully is, my rendition of that is, happy singing. It's a shout of joy or acclamation as when a king ascends to the throne. And notice that he's not just saying you should come 
singing praises. We should. But the singing of praises needs to be accompanied by joy. There should be delight in the believer's heart as they sing. Theodore Kyler, in his outstanding book, God's Light on Dark Clouds, wrote this. Every healthy Christian ought to be a happy, thankful Christian under every stress of circumstances. If good health means misery, that is, if you're, if you're healthy and that means that you're a miserable person, then is a sincere Christian a miserable mope? In other words, if, if, if good things mean that moves you to misery, then, then it's okay to be miserable. But if health means a happy condition, then should Christ's redeemed ones be the most cheerful, sunny-hearted people in the community? Might I add, regardless of the circumstances. Why? Because we have Christ. Shout joyfully. Second word of imperative he gives us, verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Now, that word serve can refer to any kind of service. It's a generic kind of thing. It's used in a, a multiple kinds of ways throughout the Old Testament. But sometimes, as here, it refers to the service of worship. So it's, it's service that is exemplified in worship. And notice that as you come to worship... He says there's a gladness to that. There ought to be a happiness to the coming of worship. Can you come to worship with gladness when you're headed out the door and your almost two-year-old says, Daddy, I have a poopy in my diaper and it's like you were just going to make it on time. And now you're delayed. Can you come to him and serve in worship with gladness? That's the test. Notice also verse 2, another imperative, come before him with joyful singing. So that command to come is to come into the presence of God. And the idea is coming into his presence in formal worship. And that coming in formal worship is accompanied by singing that is joyful. It's a, it's a happy singing. It's, it's thrilled singing. It's, it's jubilant singing. And in all honesty, that's one of the reasons that around here we've put so much focus on congregational singing. Because we want to give you an opportunity to express your delight in God as you sing. So come to him with joyful singing. And then another imperative, verse 3, and know, know that the Lord himself is God. Here that knowledge is something that becomes an acknowledgement or a confession. It's an affirmation of who God is and a delight in who God has revealed himself to be. And I want you to notice this. All of these actions are commanded. They're, remind, they're reminders to us that gratitude is not the result of something good happening to us. Gratitude is the result of being obedient and aligning our heart to God in gratitude regardless of what has happened to us. Don't you know a few people who have had some good things happen to them and you look at their life and you go, 
That's a blessed person. And you look at him and you go, he's a blessed person. He's still the gloomiest Gus I know. And the flip side, you also know some people that you just think, that person has just received hardship after hardship after hardship. I think his middle name must be Job. And you look at him and you go, I don't understand it, but he's the gladdest Gus I know. And what's the difference? The difference is that gratitude is a decisive choice that we make apart from our circumstances. I don't need good circumstances to be grateful. So we have noticed in these verses that gratitude is a command. It's an imperative. It's a mark of obedience. My following through on what God has given me to do. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's not just gratitude. The gratitude that God commands is more than just dutiful gratitude. It would be like me going to Regine and and saying to her in the morning, I love you. Oh, that's kind of you, honey. Why do you say that? Because I got to. I just... Whatever benefit I, I, I gained by saying I love you, I just lost in that moment, didn't I? Dutiful love is not really love. What if I say, hey, honey, good morning. I love you. Oh, why do you say that? Can't help myself. I'm just so enraptured by you. Okay, that's what you want to say, right? That's joyful love. And that's what the Lord wants. He doesn't want dutiful gratitude. He doesn't want gratitude that says, okay, God, here's the list. I know you've given me this stuff, so thank you. No, he wants, he wants gratitude that comes with joy. Have you noticed all the joy words? Shout joyfully, with gladness, with joyful singing, with thanksgiving, with praise, with blessing. It's, it's recognizing He's given me everything and I'm satisfied. I'm content. I'm happy with what he's done. We serve the Lord and we worship the Lord. And when we do so, glad delight and joy always accompany it. Listen, gloomy worship is not only unfitting of the Lord. It is offensive to the Lord. When we come into the presence of God, one writer has said, joy should never be absent. That's true for us. That was true for Israel. That was true. Did you remember what I said at the beginning? That is true for all the nations. This isn't a, this is a point of accountability for all people everywhere. Did you, did you worship and give thanks? And you, did you did do so with joy? Why is this so important? Why is the psalmist so emphatic about this? Why does he keep dragging this out? Why do I keep dragging it out? Because gratitude is a mandate because of God and because of who He is and what He has done. Gratitude is essential because the object of our gratitude is essential. And some of you on... Thursday may have a ball game turned on at some point in the game during the day, right? It's like 12 hours of football. It's every every man's uh, joy and every wife's nightmare. I think something like that. 
So all this football all day long, and they're going to they're going to show little clips of the players and different people expressing gratitude all day long. And what you will find is there's there's no one to receive the gratitude. They're just kind of happy, but it doesn't terminate on a person. And what the psalmist tells us is that our gratitude should terminate on God. That is, it finds its objective in God. So notice what he says. Shout joyfully to the Lord. I'm not just glad in general. I'm glad in the Lord. Verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Verse 2. Come before Him. Verse 3, know that the Lord Himself is God. It's He that has made us. It's all about Him. Genuine gratitude terminates itself on God. We're not called to be thankful in general. We're called to be thankful in particular to the giver of all of our gifts. That is God Himself. You know, one reason that you and I and the world are prone to ingratitude is that we don't see God behind our circumstances and we don't intentionally pursue joy. And so the psalmist helps us to see the God behind the circumstances. Notice what he says, verse 3. Know that the Lord himself is God. When he says the Lord himself, I mean, he could have just said the Lord is God, and that would have been true. He adds the pronoun in there himself as a way of being emphatic. It means the Lord, Yahweh, is God, and there is no one else. He's the one who's God. And then he says, it's not just the Lord and no one else. But notice that he says the Lord himself is God. God, that is, he is the one true God. It's an affirmation that there is no God but God. And this is something that that Moses began teaching the Israelites at the beginning of their existence as God's covenanted people. And it's something that that flows all through the Old Testament. Just listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Verse 35, to you it was shown, he speaks to Israel, that you might know that the Lord, he is God and that there is no other besides him. Verse 39, know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below and there is no other Why is he so emphatic about that? Because the heart is prone to saying, I want another God. Sometimes the heart says, I want me to be God. Sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, we would say, I make a lousy God, so I will seek something else as a God. But we just don't want God to be God. And what Moses says at the beginning of Israel's history, and now the psalmist reaffirms, is that there is... Only one God. There are, and I always have been, many false idols, but they are just that. They are false gods who cannot satisfy us and who are unworthy recipients of our gratitude. You will never be satisfied if you give thanks to a false god because it will not satisfy you. 
God's unique character is demonstrated by his act of creation. Notice what he says about this God who is uniquely God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are not self-existent. Now, we think we're awfully smart. We think we're awfully powerful. We think we have all kinds of abilities, but nobody has made himself. All of us have been created by a force outside of us. All of us have been sustained by a force outside of us. And that force is God in heaven alone. He is the only creator, the one who is the Lord. That is Yahweh. Not just does he say the Lord has made us, but then he emphasizes that and says, not we ourselves. There is no one that is self-existent. That's an affirmation and a denial. God's made us. We haven't made ourselves. Now, those two statements are typically taken to refer to physical physical creation. And because God has made all people everywhere, then all people everywhere should worship Him. He's the God of all people. He's sovereign over all people. He's the creator of all people. But I think there's something else going on here as well. And it is to suggest that God has spiritually made Israel to be His chosen people. Other scriptures use that creation imagery to reflect God's choosing of Israel to be his people. For instance, Isaiah chapter 43, he says this in verse 7, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. So I created a people for my name, for my glory, and I have called them to myself. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Israel. Verse 21, same chapter, Isaiah 43. The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. I I formed them, I created them, I made them, and they will glory in me and delight in me. And in case we're not wholly convinced that he's not talking about spiritual creation of Israel as well. Notice what he says in the last clause in verse 3. He has made us, not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. We are His particular, called out, chosen people to inhabit His pasture. In the parallel psalm to this one, Psalm 95, he says in verse 6, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord God, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. We come and we worship because he's not just made us physically, he's made us spiritually, the psalmist says to Israel. And not only has he made Israel to be his chosen sheep, his chosen people to live in his particular pasture, but he has also enfolded us as New Testament believers in Jesus Christ, into the promises of Israel. Why should we be happy and thankful? Because we who were on the outside, we who had no connection to the promises of God, we who were against Him, we who were hostile to Him, He has brought us in, folded us in, and made us His, if we are His. And we are His sheep. And He protects us. Listen to what James Boyce says about that principle. Regardless of what may happen to us, we are still His. Troubles inevitably will come, but it is no matter 
We are His. Sickness may come. We are His. We may lose a job. We are His. Suppose death should come into your immediate family. We are His. And we will always be His. God the Father said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Likewise, Jesus said, Surely I am with you always. The Apostle Paul said he was convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor any other thing in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are His. We're so prone to being ungrateful. And we are so prone to being only temporarily grateful because we're fixated on what we gain and lose on earth. We're both inordinately happy and inordinately sad for the blessings and and losses that we experience on earth. And we need to constantly train our eyes to look beyond these physical realities. Be grateful because it's mandated, but be grateful because God is God and you are His. And He's your shepherd who watches after you. That's the mandate to the world to give thanks to the Lord. There is also, secondly, a mandate to the redeemed to give thanks to the Lord. Part of our giving thanks to the Lord is through coming together in corporate worship that we would call gathered worship or gathered gratitude. And that gathered corporate gratitude is a mandate for God's people. Notice verse 4. When the psalmist exhorts, enter his gates, he's talking about a, a call to worship. Again, that's, a, that's an imperative. You must come. Come through his gates. Enter into his gates. Come in worship to Him. Gather as a corporate body to Him. Now the reference to the gates here is probably a a reference to the gates of the temple or perhaps a gate to the outer courtyard. Notice what he says in the next phrase. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. To come into the gates is also to come into his courts. Now, there are a couple different courtyards, and I could try and explain it, or I could show you a picture, show and tell. This is a model of the second temple. This would be a model of the temple that was built by Zerubbabel under the influence of Haggai and Zechariah, who we're talking about on most Sunday mornings these days. This is a temple, as grandiose as it is, that pales in comparison to Solomon's temple. So how grand must Solomon's temple have been? You can see right at the bottom of the screen there a gate. So there's a little rampway, walkway that goes up to the gate and into the gate. And what's coming into that gate, into that large expansive area there in the courts. And so to come into that gate or through that gate and come into that courtyard is to come for worship. Now you see a tall building kind of right in the middle. That's where the Holy of Holies was. And just outside of that are more courtyards, a couple more courtyards. And you see there in that inner walled area another gate. So it might be a reference as the psalmist is talking to enter into the outer gate or the inner gate. 
outer courtyard or inner courtyard. We really don't know which he's talking about in all honesty. It really doesn't matter. He's just saying, come for worship. Gather together with God's people for the necessity of worship. And this gathering that's done corporately, notice verse 4, is with thanksgiving. This is the parallel phrase to what follows, entering his courts with praise. So to come with praise is to come with gratitude. All worship necessitates praise and all praise is of necessity gratitude. And so while the words here in this psalm refer to a variety of kinds of praise and worship, shouting, serving, knowing, entering, giving thanks, etc. All of these things are really focused on what he says in this verse to come with gratitude. And again, notice the third line in verse 4. Give thanks to Him. It's a necessity to give thanks. Again, that's an imperative. And then another imperative, the last one, bless His name. Affirm His name. It's a, it's a public praise that enhances the nature of God in the minds of the worshipers. This verse really serves as the theme for the entire psalm. And it's the basis for all the other worship and praise. And all the other worship and praise is a form of gratitude. It's all about gratitude. I don't know about what you guys do in your lives, your inner man, how you think about what's going on in your heart of hearts. But we are, we are prone to making excuses for ourselves, aren't we? Oh, it's, just, it's just a little thing. It's not a big deal. It's like on Thursday. I'm signing up for gluttony and I'm not even apologizing for it ahead of time and I'm not going to apologize for it on Thursday either. Why? Because it's Thanksgiving and gluttony is good for us. We surmise. We just excuse it. It's okay. And we do that with all kinds of sin. Right? So... Yeah, I'm probably a little more anxious than the next guy, but you know, it just reflects my godly concern for other people. No, you're anxious and you're a worrywart. We, we have this tendency to excuse sins. One of the sins that we excuse is ingratitude. We might call ingratitude a respected sin or an expected sin. Oh, brother, oh, sister, don't be deluded. Gratitude is mandated. It's essential. The focus of God's people in worship is the character of God. We're going to see that in just a moment. And that's where a lot of churches get it so wrong today. It's, it's, it, you, you gather for worship and it's about fellowship. Well, fellowship happens, I, we, we hope, we expect. But that's not the focus. Singing is is not the focus. Even preaching is not ultimately the focus. God is the focus. Everything that we do is oriented towards Him, to drive to Him, to make us to be satisfied in Him. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Him. That's what worship does. And that's why ingratitude is such a heinous sin. 
Because it says he's not worthy to be thanked or praised in this circumstance. Oh, brother. Oh, sister. Gratitude is a necessity for our worship. One final principle here. Gathered gratitude is a mandate, again, because of God. Why should God's people gather in grateful worship? Weren't there, weren't there hard things when the psalmist wrote this? Yeah. Really hard things. We already read Psalm 89 or parts of Psalm 89. You hear the longings. You, you hear the laments. You hear the brokenness. You hear the complaining, unrighteous. So why? If, if life's so hard, then why come in gratitude? Notice verse 5. They enter His gates with thanksgiving. They enter His courts with praise. They give thanks to Him and bless His name. Why? Because for the Lord is good. To say that the Lord is good is to say something about His nature. It means that His essence is kind, good-natured, benevolent, beautiful, delightful. That's His nature. Greg, I'm thinking about a story you pointed me to years ago from C.S. Lewis. The kids in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia are down at the... Some of you are nodding your heads. You know where I'm going. Should I just say like illustration six and move on? <laughs> the kids are gathered at the water and they see the lion. And they get afraid. And, uh, oh, it's Aslan. Well, then it's safe if it's Aslan. Safe. Who said anything about him being safe? But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And we've conflicted safe with good. We've conflicted ease with good. Just because you have a hard life, a hard circumstance, doesn't mean God's nature has changed. In fact, notice what he says here. The Lord is good. That word Lord in most of your Bibles, is probably in lower caps, which means it's the name Yahweh. It's His covenanted name with Israel. It's the God of promise. It's the God who says, I will make you to be my people, and you are safe with me. That covenant God, Yahweh, which is actually the name that is used for Him all the way through this psalm, is good. You know what else is interesting about that little ascription, the Lord is good? It's not only given all through the scriptures to demonstrate that God is good, but one of the very first descriptions that we have in the scriptures about God is His goodness. Genesis 1, 4. He made darkness and light and it was good. Why was it good? Because it came from a God who was good. His forming of Israel is good. Isaiah thirty fifteen. His law 
is good. Romans 7.12 His will is good, acceptable, and perfect. Romans 12.2 Everything that God has ever done or will do for His people is good. Psalm 119.68 If you don't know this, you need to memorize this. The Lord is good and does good. Teach me your statutes. You're good. Teach me what to do. Because in what you tell me what to do, I will find goodness. And never anything but goodness. We grumble and we complain because we think what we have is not good. And I would ascribe to you that if we could change what God in his goodness has granted to us, That whatever we change would be a movement away from his goodness to something less beneficial. So that hard thing that God has granted you is his goodness to you. Change it and you move away from goodness. Stay there and you remain in his good promises for you. There are two more phrases in this psalm. And they are parallel and they are critical for understanding this psalm and being grateful. The Lord is good, verse 5. His loving kindness is everlasting. His loving kindness is everlasting. What's his loving kindness? That's his, his loyal love. That's his promise that he made to Israel to make a covenant with Israel. To save Israel, to be his people for all of eternity. It's his faithfulness. And when he says your loving kindness, your covenant with Israel is everlasting. He means means that your faithful love to your covenant people is endless and it is infinite. It does not diminish and does not fade away. Similarly, in a parallel statement, he says in the last phrase of the psalm, and his faithfulness to all generations. That faithfulness looks to his loving kindness, his promise from the previous phrase. And like everlasting, he says it's to all generations. If there's a generation that is in existence, God's faithfulness extends to that generation. He is faithful to keep all of his promises to Israel eternally. Now watch this. Those two statements are future looking. They remind Israel to be grateful for the future. To look ahead to what God will do in keeping and preserving and providing for his people tomorrow and into eternity. And those two phrases mean that God will keep his promises to Israel and take them into eternity. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we have similar kinds of promises. Says one writer, God's faithfulness and loyal love endure from age to age. Thus, God is completely dependable. He keeps his promises. He fulfills his plans. He never fails People can say this of no one else, only God. But the problem is, they do not say it enough. You and I tend to be so wrapped up 
in what's going on today that we stop looking into the future and what God has promised. And that future, brothers and sisters, is so sure you can say thank you today for what's coming tomorrow. You can't say thank you yet for Thursday's meal because you don't know. You don't know if that turkey is going to get overcooked and dried out, raw in the middle, dropped on the ground and devoured by a dog. It's happened. You don't know how that pecan pie is going to turn out. You don't know whether or not you should be grateful yet. Brother and sister, you have something awaiting tomorrow that is so guaranteed. You can come with gratitude today and be fully justified in saying thank you because of that provision. We have something of immense value. Now, I, I, I like what I'm going to eat on Thursday. I like the relationships that are going to be enjoyed on Thursday. I love those relationships that we're anticipating. I'm thankful for relationships and fellowship with you here. My brother and sister, we have something way better waiting for us. We have something of immense weight awaiting for us in glory. And every delight and every joy I've experienced on earth, every one of them has faded. That new car that I bought in 1980 has been sitting in a junkyard, I suppose, for the better part of three decades now. It was such a delight. And it's scrap metal now. Every meal I've eaten was satisfying at the time, but it's diminished in its effectiveness. Everything we have in glory will never diminish. You know what's interesting is the Bible consistently speaks of being, about being grateful for what we're getting in the future. I, I could give you a bunch of scriptures. Let me just draw attention to two. One in the Old Testament, one in the New. Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33, verse 10. Thus says the Lord, Yet again there will be heard in this place of which you say, It is a waste without man and without beast. That is, in the cities of Judah and the cities of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without inhabitant and without beast. So you're in this place and you've lost everything. There's nothing here. You're in God's covenanted city and God's covenanted land and it's desolate. It's empty. And in that place, it will be said, the voice of joy and the voice of gladness the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who say, give thanks to the Lord of hosts for the Lord is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. There's coming a day when in the city of desolation, it will not be desolate, but the king will reign on his throne 
And you can give thanks, Jeremiah says, as the weeping prophet, to people who are brokenhearted. You can give thanks now. Paul emphasizes the same thing. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. That's verse 3. Verse 6. Because I am confident of this very thing. That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I'm thankful, not just for what God's doing now, but I'm thankful for what is coming in the day of Christ Jesus. It's been said that remembering God's faithfulness in the past fortifies us to trust Him, to be gracious in the future. That's true. But the principle of this passage is that remembering His faithfulness to which He cannot deny Himself to keep His great promises about the future also fortifies us to live trusting Him in our present troubles. You make it through the present day by looking to the future. If God will keep you then, won't He provide now? If He can keep you eternally, which is our greatest problem, can't He provide For what you need today, which is the lesser problem. Yes, because he is good, he will give you what you need. We look to the future to be strengthened today. This week, there are going to be a lot of expressions of gratitude. A lot of gratitude is going to be expressed for things that we can lose. Family, food and fun. And much gratitude will not be directed to anyone ultimate. We will avoid God at all costs in certain circles. And this psalm reminds us of the true nature of gratitude. It is to Him. It is to His character. It is to His nature. Let your gratitude this this week be shaped in similar ways. It's appropriate to be grateful for food and family and fun. God gave us those things too. Just don't let your joy terminate there. Let your joy terminate on the one who gave you those things and infinitely more through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for this, dare we say, simple psalm that is so profoundly helpful. We acknowledge that too often we have been ungrateful We have not been meticulous to be obedient in cultivating gratitude. Might this week be different? In a week where there's going to be a lot of complaining about a lot of things, because that's the tenor of our age. In a week in which there's going to be a lot of gratitude for all of the wrong things. Might we find our gratitude in you Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.